Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. That's that. Today we're going to jump into our Holy Hospitality series. We're back. Week three, I think. I don't know where we are. We're, we're in it. Week four. Week four. I knew we're somewhere in there. Um, maybe you were in here and you thought... They're going to talk about hospitality. I assume there's going to be a lot of food talk because, you know, when you host people, you usually eat and you've been low on the food talk, but waiting for the food talk. Um, we're going to have three weeks where Jesus and meals is all we're talking about. And uh, we got a lot to learn. Last week we were in Matthew 14. Jesus was grieving. He had gotten approached by some needy folks. Um, he was sharing radical hospitality, received them, healed them. And so this crowd is gathered and they're hungry. Now, if you're exhausted, maybe the last thing you want to hear somebody tell you is, I'm hungry. Parents understand this. Hungry kids um, are exhausting. Everybody kind of has walked through a season where your children are entirely reliant on you, or you were a child entirely reliant on a parent. When children come home and uh, they say they're hungry, little kids get hungry, that means something. And yet they run into this season of life where they're hungry, and yet it, what they're hungry for is, doesn't exist on earth. You know this feeling? Do you need, um, you need food? And they're like, yes, I'm dying. I'm hungry. Do you want dino nuggets? No dino nuggets. I want gogurt. You get gogurt. Not that gogurt. The other gogurt. We don't have that go- You know, you go through the whole thing, and you're like, why don't you just give up? Everybody gives up for everything. And that's when children are little. You have this kind of like implied helplessness. I'm exhausted. You're hungry. This is not working. Kids get older, they become more self-sufficient. You feel like you've won. They get their own snacks. And then all of a sudden, hormones kick in, and you realize that young, hormonal, growing bodies can eat so much food, right? So now it's exhausting in a whole other way. Now you're not being exhausted physically, you're being exhausted financially because a group of teenage boys can clear out a fridge in about 20 minutes. Didn't I buy hummus? Where are the mangoes? We had five pounds of bacon, and like two rooms over, somebody goes, yeah, it was delicious. And you go, all right. Parents are out of ideas, so what do we do? We send our kids to college, or we say, just go get a job. I'm convinced that college is 8% academics and 92% allowing young people to figure out how to feed themselves. That's what we're doing. It's like, just (laughs) figure it out. Um, You're asking what the point of this story is. Obviously, um, it takes us to the Scriptures. So, Matthew 14. Verse 15, we pick up the story. As evening approached... The disciples came to him, to Jesus, and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late, so send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. We're tired. They're hungry. That's a bad formula. Can we be done here? You you could see the disciples going again with this, more of this. They always have needs. People always have needs. Why couldn't we follow a normal rabbi, right? Memorize some scripture, learn some lessons, just live our lives. And yet everywhere they go with Jesus, there's needs and needs and needs. And so you, you see them whew, just going, tell them there's a restaurant over the hill and we'll run the other way before they figure it out. It'll be done. we out of here. It's always something with Jesus. There's always issues. There's always needs. There's always people. 
thousands of people in this scenario. Jesus is grieving, tries to escape. Thousands of people are gathering around him, and now they're hungry. They want food. Can they just go away? Verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So Jesus says, bring them here to me. They assume that the facts of their scenario, we don't have enough food, will get him off the scent. Jesus, undeterred, does a little bit of inventory and says, that will probably work. Bring it. What happens next? Verse 19. He directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, blessed it. He broke the loaves and then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. You might know how this ends, but let's read it to be sure. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. 5,000 plus eat on five and two. Jesus obviously shows radical hospitality. Jesus welcomes people, serves people, feeds people, loves them in their hour of need. But what I want you to see today, what I really want you to grab is he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. The Bible is this beautiful thing that if we look at it in pieces, if we grab a little anecdote here and a story there and a passage here, and I like this verse and I'll put this on a coffee cup, and we think that's it, we miss it. The beauty of the Bible is it all fits together, it all weaves together, it all goes together. And when we run across these kind of meta ideas and we recognize them, we start to see them everywhere. If you flip forward one page in Matthew, you see in Matthew 15, he's just fed 5,000. Matthew 15, another crowd is gathered. He tells the crowd to sit down on the ground. And then he took seven loaves and the fish and we had given thanks. He blessed it. He broke them and he gave them to the disciples and they in turn gave it to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. So he feeds 5,000 because he takes blesses, breaks, and gives. And then 4,000 show up and he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. We move to the Last Supper in the upper room. He sits with his disciples. One of you will betray me. My hour has come. This is it, my friends. He's telling them this is the ultimate pinnacle of my life. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it. This is my body. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Essentially the same with the cup. This is my blood, a new and everlasting covenant. My blood will be shed for you and for all that sins might be forgiven. He takes it, he blesses it, he distributes it. After the resurrection, he's on the beach. He appears, the disciples are fishing. They're having no luck. They're not catching a thing. He instructs them, throw your nets off the other side of the boat to which they must roll their eyes and go, who's this loser on the beach telling us how to fish? Except they pull in 153 fish, a catch so big it's breaking the nets. Peter recognizes it, runs to go see his Lord and his Savior. Jesus takes their catch. He builds a fire, this haul of fish, this blessed haul. He takes it, breaks it, gives it. 
Jesus has this habit of taking an insufficient offering. He gives thanks for it. He blesses it. He breaks it. He distributes it. Some sort of holy rhythm develops in the scriptures. And then you look at the life of Jesus and everywhere you look, you see this. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Do you remember the time this was done for Jesus? Mark 14. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, her offering. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head, and some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Matthew and Mark mentioned the cost of the perfume. Luke's gospel tells us she was a known sinner and they were in a Pharisee's house. So a sinful woman takes her life in her most prized possession, uses it as, as a blessing and an anointing upon Jesus. She breaks it and gives it to him. And while everyone recoils in horror and all the judgy religious types find fault, Jesus smiles tells them she's done something beautiful and that wherever the gospel is preached, she'll be mentioned. Because she takes and she blesses and she breaks and she gives. This is your life and mine. I don't know about you. I don't think I really have gifts fit for a king. I don't have the perfect life and the perfect offering to give to the Savior. But we bring our lives anyway, don't we? In hopes of being a blessing, we open our lives up and we pour them out to God. I don't always feel like my day is the best offering for royalty. You burn dinner, you're impatient with your kids, and you're grumbling at somebody in traffic or muttering under your breath at the person who cut you off in the grocery store. It sort of reminds me when I think of my day and my offering and my, my honest self I don't have cats. Maybe you're cat people. Some of you are cat people. Cats bring their owners gifts. Cat people know what I'm talking about. And by gifts, I mean like a mangled bird just shows up on your porch. And you're like, oh, the cat really loves us. A mouse, like with, you know, one eyeball hanging out. It's like, look, the cat brought it and it's patting at it. And it's like, look, we're friends now. And the cat owner must say, you shouldn't have. Like, that's great. Thanks for nothing. Our dog, um, a story that I promised him I would never tell, but he's not here, so he doesn't care. Um, when we were living in Texas, our dog jumped on my now 15-year-old's bed and uh, horked up a baby bird. Yeah, we threw the beds away. But it's, um, I was like, he's bringing you a present. She's like, I can still see the beak. Um, you shouldn't have, is what we said. I'm sorry, I told him I wouldn't say it, but I did. Um, I feel that way when I think about my life sometimes. I wonder if Jesus looks at my day and my insecurity and my pride and he goes, that's for me? Like, that's what you're bringing? You shouldn't have. But look at what he does takes a few loaves and fish and he makes it enough for thousands. He takes our broken, insufficient lives, our meager offerings, and he holds them. He holds them as beautiful. The woman, the sinner, this woman, she's not welcome. She's a sinner. She's, oh. She comes and brings her offering. He holds it as beautiful. 
you and I bring our offering to God, holds it as beautiful, says, if you'd pour out your life for me, it isn't about how precious it is, it isn't how expensive it is, it isn't how perfect you are, it isn't how righteous you are. It's, are you willing to live your life for me? If so, I hold it as beautiful. Why? Psalm 103, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. We're God's children. He created us from dust. Adam means man of the dirt. He creates us from dust, and then we bring him our best, and it's not like he thinks we're supposed to be better than we are. Any parent who's ever gotten their kid's finger paint of nothing, it's a Christmas tree. You're like, it's blue. What are you doing? That's not good art. No one says that. You go, it's beautiful. I'll put it on the fridge. And that's what you do with your child's finger paints. And we finger paint our lives for God. And sometimes we're like, look, Christmas tree. And he goes, that's brown and blue. That's not how that goes away with you to outer darkness. Like that's not anywhere in the scripture. It says God holds us like children. God knows that we're weak. God sees our offering. He holds it as beautiful. So our broken lives and our half-hearted faith, but we keep showing up and saying, what about this, Lord? Psalm 103, again. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagle's. Because our God is a God who takes and blesses and breaks and gives. Our God is a God who can receive whatever the meager offering is we have, and he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And he can do it with our lives because our lives are rooted in his life. So you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus lives God in human flesh, God in human form. He offers his life as a thank offering. He lives his life as a blessing to God. When he prays, he prays God's will, the Father's will. When it's time for him to take the cross, he willingly accepts it. There he's broken for you and me. His blood's poured out. You start to see the pattern. Jesus' own life, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it. And he tells us along the way, I'm the bread of life. The miracle is not about the miracle. The miracle is about the miracle, right? The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the alabaster jar, the Last Supper is not about those individual anecdotal things. It's about the larger story being told in your Bible, the larger story being told by the creator who sends us his word so that we might be enlightened to know what's true in a world where everything seems upside down. That the God of the universe saw fit to love you by taking his life offering it as a blessing, breaking it, pouring it out for you. I'm the bread of life. And the people were freaked out. He who eats of me shall never be hungry. And they're like, this is weird. Is he telling us we have to eat his body? People still struggle with this. Theologians still argue about this. What, is he, what do you think he means by that? He means in a world where everything is consumable, the only thing that you can consume, the only thing you can have in your life that will actually fill you is me. Everything else in the world will consume you. Try anything else, it consumes you and it'll never satisfy. I need another one, a newer one, a better one. We've talked about the more, better, different trap. 
I got some of this, but I want more of it. Now I got enough of it, but I want a better one. And I got a better one, but I need a different one so at least I stand out. And eventually you get to the end of that road and you have despair. I really want a TV. Now I want two TVs. Now I want a better TV. Now I want a different TV. It's got backlighting. Does it make the picture clearer? No, but it's blue behind the TV now. And you go, oh, mm, cool. It's curved. Awesome. It's plasma. I don't know what that means. And you get to the end of it and you have all the TVs and the best TV in the world. And you go, guess what? It didn't really satisfy. Uh, and then that's where despair checks in. And we do it with silly things and we do it with big, important things. We do it with spouses and we do it with faith and we, whew, I need more, I need better, I need different despair. Jesus is saying the only thing you can consume with your life that will ever satisfy you is me. I'm the bread of life. In me, you'll never be hungry. But if you fill yourself with me, Jesus says, if you feast on my hope and my goodness, then you find true life. We spend our whole life looking for the meaning of life when the meaning of life spends his life looking for us, inviting us, offering real satisfaction. In this feeding of the 5,000, it says they ate and were satisfied. That's the, that's the part we should take away. They ate and were satisfied. They had five and two, and somehow 5,000 ate and were satisfied. At the end of your day, do you hit the pillow satisfied? Or longing, or yearning, or wishing, or envying, or comparing? When our primary bread of life is Jesus, then there is no satisfaction that we don't possess. And most of us go to bed with this yearning and this longing and this, there's gotta be something more to life. And that's because we've consumed anything less than him. And in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, they ate and were satisfied of food they didn't produce from a hand they didn't know. And we spend our lives on this treadmill of consumption wondering when it's going to be full. Jesus says, you fill yourself with me and you find the satisfaction you've been waiting for. Some of you in the room are protesting already. Not me. I'm not good enough. I, I can't eat that. I can't be part of that. Jesus doesn't want me there. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. You don't know where I've been. You don't know who I am. You don't know how weak my faith is. Do I even have any? Some of you don't even want to be here. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to receive this life. I'm not good enough to receive fulfillment. I'm not good enough to be satisfied. I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of that. Too many people are hearing this whisper from the enemy and believing it. My offering isn't enough. God won't accept me where I am. So we stop talking to God. We stop reaching out. We stop receiving and we start going, Ooh, he doesn't want to know me. I want to tell you, Jesus is not afraid of your insufficient offering. Jesus isn't afraid of your insufficient offering. He's not afraid of your sin life. He's not afraid of your thought life. He's not afraid of the places where you're not good enough. He's for those places. That's why he's for. And we spend our whole lives in this weird guilt shame trap where we're just going through the motions going, man, if you only knew, if you only knew, if you only knew, if you only knew, God knows. 
He came anyway. That's why he's here. And we spend our lives just shaming ourselves into oblivion. And he goes, no, I came to release you from the prison of that. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. His life was broken that yours would be made whole. The implication is that your life is broken, that you're not perfect, that you're kind of messed up. And he goes, that's my job is to make you whole, to put you back together, to show you what real life looks like. I don't know, though. Jesus goes, I do. I do. I know. People have defined true love as being fully known and still loved. Like true love is when somebody knows you inside out and still loves you. Most of us don't have that kind of community. Most of us don't have those sorts of relationships. A lot of marriages don't have that sort of love. We hide stuff because, like, man, if she truly knew what I was doing, if he truly knew what I was thinking, then maybe he wouldn't love me. Maybe she wouldn't love me. God's love is I know you fully and I love you anyway. God, I love you fully even though I fully know you. What are you afraid of? Of your poverty of spirit? The life of Jesus that we see through this meal he provides. Jesus says, bring your offering to me. No matter how meager, no matter how silly, no matter how small, no matter how broken. Bring me your scraps and your broken pieces and watch how I make it something. More than you thought it could be made into. More satisfying than you ever imagined. And if you don't believe me, Jesus would say, look at my life. Watch the way my life played out. My entire life was a picture for you of what I'm willing to do with your life. Take your offering, bless it, and watch as it's offered like the alabaster jar, broken open, spilled out, and distributed amongst the people. Your life is designed to be broken open, to be a blessing to others, a fragrance to God, an anointing to the Savior. Your life is designed for that. Your life is the alabaster jar. But couldn't he have done more if he had just focused on his entrepreneurship instead of some of this philanthropy? Couldn't she have done more if she would have been better in this corporate environment instead of in the teaching in this school? Couldn't he have done more? Couldn't she have done more? Couldn't her status have been better? Couldn't we have been more if we had just done what the world wanted us to do? The disciples are arguing, couldn't it have been more? Couldn't we have made more or fed more or helped more? Couldn't we have done something different? And Jesus says, this is what the point is, that your life would be broken open as an anointing to the Savior, as a picture to the world, that there's nothing else that matters. So you can put your pennies away and you can put your insufficiencies away and you can put all your little things away. And Jesus says, the whole point of the whole thing is that I came as an offering. I came to be broken so you might be made whole. I came to be poured out so that you might be filled up. I came so that you would no longer walk in that guilt and shame spiral. And it's upon us to then receive it. It's upon us to look at the stories that we're being told, to look at the picture that Scripture is giving us, and to re realize that we have shamed our way out of it, we've talked our way out of it, and that Jesus says, I just want you in. So today is your opportunity to come in. I don't know where you are, I don't know what you brought, I don't know what's on you, um, that you're carrying right now, what weight you have. We're baptizing next week, maybe that's your first step, I don't know. 
Maybe you need to go, I, I need to accept what God's done for me and my first step of obedience, I'm gonna get in the water and be baptized. Jesus was baptized at 30. So if you're like, I don't know, I'm 23. Yeah, you're fine. But this can be the day when we start to receive his promises. This can be the day when we start to receive his, his life offering for us. And too many of us, too many Sundays walk out of this room and right back into the same traps where the Savior takes and blesses and breaks and gives. And you and I need to realize that the abundance is there for us to receive. He who eats of it will never be hungry again. They all ate and were satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, I would uh, confess to being in the front of the line. And it's pride over pride over pride that holds me back from receiving your fullness. When my offering is not enough or my offering is not quite right, when my day goes sideways, when my, my thoughts go somewhere they shouldn't. Lord, remind me and then remind us that you didn't come because we were qualified. You came to qualify us. God, remind us that you didn't come because we were all put together. You came because we were broken. And then remind us that we don't have to stay there. Lord, I pray that you would touch each heart in this room, in each area that we're holding back. You would help us recognize the places that we aren't willing to receive your goodness and your grace, the places that we've refused your abundance out of our own selfishness and pride. Father, my, my prayer is that we would be a community who leaves here full and satisfied, that wakes up every morning full and satisfied, that hits the pillow at night full and satisfied, that we operate out of the abundance of your goodness and your blessing and that our lives are broken open for you as an anointing. It starts today. So Father, work in us. Send your spirit. Move our hearts that we might live for you. Pray these things in your son's saving name. Amen.